0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Wagon Wheel. I am your host, Jared Kimber. I just corrected myself. I suppose I am Jared Kimber. I don't know if I'm personally your host or how this works. You can see this podcast on YouTube when we put up the episodes. Uh, it goes up on the red Inca feed. And, of course, those of you listening live on Spotify Green Room. now, you can always do that if you follow us on Spotify Green Room. Yada, yada, yada. Things happen. I don't really understand. Thanks to Sports Social who've um, brought us on board to their podcast network. Bodyline T-shirts. I've got the WG Grace Happening today, just that's me rubbing my chest if you're listening at home. <laughs> and huge thanks to Manscaped as always. If you use the code REDINCA, all one word, you get 20% off of free worldwide shipping and all of their products, lawnmower, Oh, the ball moisturizer. I think it's a moisturizer. Deodorant? Might be both. They might have both. I don't know. They've got a lot of things to help you polish your balls. Uh, and as we know in cricket, it's always important that the person doing that has the least sweaty hands available. I'm not sure where I've gone with this analogy. Big thanks to everyone who supports us on Buy Me A Coffee as well. And I suppose we're going to the Patreon. So the Patreon supporters are the reason that this podcast exists. If you're on a first class or above Patreon level, I think it's like clubby first class test World Cup winner. I don't know what the things are. But if you're first class and above, you get to ask questions to start this podcast on Wagon Wheel. And Neil says, DRS question. The ball tracking technology obviously has a margin of error due to the predictive element. That's why we have umpires call. How come this only works one way? Umpires gives the decision not out, and the ball is just clipping, and it remains with the umpire's call. However, when the umpire's decision is out, and the ball is shown to be just missing, uh, the decision is overturned. Surely the margin of error should work both ways. Uh, it's a really good question. I honestly, Neil, I'd have to think about that a lot more. But um, I think what what we are trying, what they are trying to do, really, is come up with a system that uses the best of the umpire's um knowledge and uses the best of the technology together i know a lot of people don't really get it um but if 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 there is a margin of error we will go with what the on-field call was so i don't i don't really see how your system would improve anything In fact, from a TV perspective and from a fan perspective, I think it would be even more confusing, right? So the margin of error is, it's saying to the best of our availability, this ball is just missing the stumps or just hitting the stumps. The decision on the field was this, so we're going to go with this. Or the decision on the field was that, so we're gonna go with that. Um, I don't see how your system would improve the overall quality of the umpiring, Or the product itself. I mean, people are having enough trouble with umpire's call. What you're talking about is now it looks like we're literally overruling it. Um, So I, I don't see how what you've said makes sense. The margin of error is already in the decision. Um, to begin with, if the umpire says it's just missing and it's just clipping, we go with the umpire and, and the technology as a combined decision to say it's just missing. Um, I think I hopefully have explained that well, um, but I think yours would just bring in more ambiguity. And also, I just don't think anyone would like it if we're being honest. Uh, if you were a cricket agent in 2022 and had to pick a player from history to earn the most amount of money through T20 leagues, who would you take? Probably Garfield Sobers um, can field in any position, can bats, can bowl. Uh, pace with the new ball, can bowl two different kinds of spin, could bat one to seven. I don't see any reason why he couldn't open the batting in T20 cricket. I'm trying to think of anyone else. I, I suppose Aubrey Faulkner, although he wasn't particularly dashing T20 player, uh, sorry, uh, attacking player, although he could score when he had to, but as a leg spinner, could spin the ball both ways uh, at a you know, high, high quality. He'd certainly be up there trying to think. Imran Khan was a bit defensive. I suppose P K and Botham would be another really interesting one. Again, swinging the ball, could bat anywhere from one to seven. Not quite the fielder that Garfield Sobers is. Also bold spin on occasion. Um, so you are looking at players with sort of the ultimate flexibility. Obviously, if you're looking for specialists, Wasim Akram, Viv Richards, uh, Alan Davidson would be another one as well, um, are probably up there. But I can't see how any of them beat Sobers, if we're being honest. Sachmo says... When the 1981 Ashes series was decided by a massive disparity of experience and authority between, the, was it, sorry, uh, massive disparity of experience and authority between the two captains? No, I mean, if if you go back to to the the Botham test and you look at the way he batted, it was a spectacular innings, and we've seen a lot of them in in the history of te- Test cricket or or even uh, limited overs cricket. Hum and in the Women's World Cup a couple of years ago capital um, dev against the Zimbabweans, you know, we see innings like this occasionally. If you go back and watch them, they kind of could have spooned one up in the air at any stage, right? Um, if both them, if of them is out um, in that test and Australia win it easily, you're not asking this question. And yet Kim Hughes has probably done nothing different um, in that situation. So I think we, we look at things through a sort of a captaincy prism, when realistically we should be going, you know, sometimes these things just happen. Um, was Brearley a better captain than you? I mean, everyone kind of suggested that. You know, sometimes I read Brearley's book and I, I yeah, I, look, I, I find it very interesting. I think Briley was obviously an astute tactician. I think he did some really interesting things in the game, but I think a lot of them were very showy and people liked very showy captaincy and he probably had times in his career when he was very good at man management. But he was about one-fifth the batter that Kim Hughes was, right? Like, you were going, you were almost going into a test match with 10 players. So does that all even out? Does it not all even out? I don't even know if we're being completely honest, Satchmo. Christopher said, I thought after Mark Wood was ruled out of the IPL, do cricketers insure, insure themselves from injuries? And is it common practice for all players to do so for franchise leagues? You, you can get it. The insurance is really, really tricky. If you get injured in a league or with a team, usually that team covers your injury. I believe there are some players with personal um, insurance, but I don't know who they are. And they're obviously, you know, not talking about it specifically. I know Shane Warne injured, uh, sorry, Shane Warne insured his finger, I want to say, many years ago. So it is possible for a player to do it, but I remember talking to Tamal Mills, and he said that the team that you are with ha- is is supposed to cover that. That does get really dodgy with certain owners, if we're being completely honest. Um, and so it's why a lot of players try and keep a first class uh, uh, franchise on on their um, uh, as part of their contracts. Like it doesn't mean that they have to be playing first class cricket, but you know. F- if you're in England, it would be want to be Sussex. If you're in New Zealand, it would be Otago because they will cover those things for you. Um, they have a plan um, that, that covers all the players there. But, yeah, it's it's really mucky. I do believe that some players do have um, insurance. In fact, I'm pretty sure one player told me that he had, um, uh, what's it called? It's called income protection insurance. So there are certain things. With Mark Wood, his injury would be covered by the ECB. Um, whether he has income protection Insurance or anything, that would be something on, on top of it. But his actual health and everything would be covered by um, the ECB, would be my guest there. Christopher? Ross says, heard a clip of Michael Kaspert's quickly correcting himself on air this week. Call after calling the Lahore track uh flat. Reportedly, flat is something the PCB of us is not to say. Good batting strip is preferred. Description. In your experience, have you been limited in what you can say to requests from boards and tournament organizers? Okay. I believe that they were told that. Honestly, Ramis Rajar should know better. He's a former commentator, and he wouldn't have liked to be told to do this. It's unprofessional. It's stupid. And it's also, you know, we all know it's we know what a flat pitch is, right? Um, so it makes the commentators look stupid. It makes the board look petty. And realistically, Ramis Rajar should be fixing the pitches, not trying to stop the, the words that have been used. Have I ever been told, no, I did the ICC World Feed? I don't think we. I was told anything specific. I'm trying to think. Radio is a little bit different. You can fly under um, the radar a little bit with radio. You're not getting paid the same money you're getting paid on TV to start with. You, I've never had to sign a contract that says I can't say anything. I'm trying to think when I did the world feed if there was anything. You know, the people who, who most tried to, and this is a true story, when the all-out cricket group I think when they took over Wisdom, but I can't remember if it was before Wisdom or after Wisdom, they once signed me up for some event where I had to go and speak. And on the event, they said I wasn't allowed to talk about Kevin Peterson in the height of the Kevin Peterson era. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be talking about Kevin Peterson. It was a Q&A as well. Can you imagine? It's like 40 cricket fans have come to a literature event. And like, what do you think? The minute I finished my speech, they all wanted to ask about they obviously all wanted to ask about Kevin Peterson. And I was saying to the uh, that was ridiculous. So I've certainly had that. I can't think of anywhere else. There's sometimes legal issues. There are sometimes editorial decisions that um that your that your publications uh, make, obviously. But from a board perspective, I know I know the BCCI asked that we stop calling Shrinivas and Shrini, um, which was uh, which is probably fair. I mean, his name is Shrinivasan. Uh, his nickname is Shrini. But no, it's not something that I've had uh, particularly a lot in my career. Uh, I, if you hire me, you kind of know that it comes with the territory. I'm going to say what I say. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's probably one of the reasons I haven't been on TV for being honest, Ross. <laughs> so my asked another question. Are Bradman and Warren clearly two greatest cricketers ever? No, I don't think Warren's the second best cricketer ever. Um, It's certainly not on the level that Bradman was. Sobers, callous. I mean, Imran Khan for a decade, um, all, uh, you know, all did what Warren did. If not, I mean, Murali's in the Warren conversation as well. Um, I think you can go, you can go 12 rounds with that one. Um, there's certainly things that Murali was better at. There were certainly advantages that Murali had. There's certainly advantages that Warren had in that situation. So it's a really interesting one to begin with. Um, uh, but but absolutely no doubt that Warn's right up there. Um, I don't know if I'd have him as. I mean, it really is. It really is Bradman and then Daylight. Um, if you're looking at peak ten year period, Imran Khan's the only person who I think has ever had a period as sustained as Bradman's. Um, uh, Warn was Warn was absolutely fantastic. I mean, you could make a very big argument that Warn wasn't the best bowler in his team either that Glenn McGrath was right. Like it's <laughs> Glenn McGrath averaged what, three or four runs less per wicket. Um, maybe even slightly more than that. I have to go back and look at the averages. It, it's a really good question. Warren had a different impact in that spin was fading away from front and center outside of Asia, but even in inside Asia, at certain um, extent, like Apple dev was kind of the star in India at that point, And was a macro, and Waka Yunus were the stars, um, in Pakistan. Um, and Sri Lanka didn't really have any bowling things, so Shane Warne had a bigger impact than a lot of the other players, uh, and was a bigger star because he became a proper celebrity, not just a cricket celebrity. But I don't think he's the second best player in the history of our game. Uh, I think that would be a very, very hard argument to make. Um, it's you know it's bloody hard looking for me across eras and everything as it is. But no, I don't think Warne's the second best player we've ever had. Akuma says, we've seen Steve Smith as well as Coley's strike rate be a bit lower than their respective peaks, uh, while their control false shot percentage is lower. Does this make them more susceptible to get out before converting 50 to 100s? I I think I'd have to have a look at the numbers. So you're saying that their strike rate is lower than their respective peaks, while their control false shot percentage is lower. Well, they're getting out more, so they're probably scoring slower. Would that make sense? Uh, I think those two follow on. Um, Is it an aging curve? Yeah, with Virat Kohli, I'm really interested in it being an aging curve. Uh, Steve Smith, I suppose we're talking an aging curve as well. It's really interesting he's gone to Pakistan and found it a lot easier. So it seems to be what we probably assumed it was. The pace and bounce um, was more of a problem for him, which again would would suggest it's an aging curve. But I don't know if we're being completely honest. Uh, Sandeep says, wouldn't John Campbell and Jermaine Blackwood be biz T20 players and test players, yet they don't seem to play much T20? Okay, so there's a really interesting reason for this, um, Sandeep, uh, which I have written about and probably put in the video before. It's the way that the CPL works. The CPL only has six teams. A majority of the players come out of Trinidad because that's the stronger uh, T20 um, uh, market. And then you have the problem of... <laughs> you. You basically have a couple of stars. You have four overseas players. You have a couple of mid range West Indian players. And then you have younger players. And they're set up on purpose to have that. You have to have a young development player in every team. Obviously, you've got the four overseas players um, in your team as well. You've got to then have local players. What happens is the players from um, uh, the players of that sort of Jermaine Blackwood and John Campbell quality band which would as you're right they probably would be good t20 players if they played it consistently and worked on their games um don't really get the chance unless they star almost straight away and if they don't they get discarded there's a lot of really really good players really good t20 players who don't even play in the cpl um there's a couple of brothers uh that off the top of my head that i'm thinking of that are probably both mid-20s maybe even early 30s now that don't play um uh, there was the uh, left arm finger spinner Lamont, um, the Jamaican who played with us in St. Lucia. He's quite clearly a T20 player, right? He's just quite clearly of that quality. Um, but you know, a specialist left arm finger spinner doesn't bat gets left off if they had a 10 team tournament or, you know, if they had, um, uh, less overseas players, a lot of these guys would get a go. Now, having said that, Blackwood's had a lot of chances at T20 pl- cricket. I don't know about Campbell specifically. Um, the, the other problem is that both of them probably need to open, and that's the position in T20 cricket where there's always someone, right? So it does become a little bit tougher. But but your basic point is, is very much there, Sandy. James says Would it be feasible and valid to try and qualify, uh, qual- quantify the test performance potential exclusion era South Africans by looking at their performance in cricket? Uh, they were able to play and then measuring the overall standard of that form of cricket. Uh, could we make a reasonable hypothesis about Clive or is a test level based on comparing WSC County and Rebel Series to test level overall? World Series cricket probably gives us a better idea. Uh, I'm not sure about the Rebel Series because I don't think any of those were particularly strong. County cricket, I mean, you run into the Graham Hick um, and Mark Ramprakash problem with county cricket at a certain point. I think you know if someone has a phenomenal record at county cricket over a long period of time uh, that they are probably a test cricketer. That said, uh, there's plenty of people who dominate county cricket who wouldn't dominate test cricket as well. Uh, but, yeah, you, you can certainly get a very good idea from doing all those things, James. I think we know those players were above-average talents and uh, and certainly very good players, but we're never going to be able to, no matter how much research you do, you're never going to be able to put them in the right light because – they didn't play in India and they didn't play in Australia and they wouldn't play against the West Indies. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of very good South African players who are obviously very talented. We don't know how they would have gone against Tomo and Lily. Uh, we don't know how they would have gone um, against uh, the West Indians. And I'm not just talking about the top players who are obvious, you know, Barry Richards and Graham Pollock and, and Clive Rice, but, but that sort of level just below those players there's wicket keeper. Oh, I'm going to forget his name. I think it's Dennis Lindsay. I think that's his name. I hope it's right, who had a series, a Gilchrist-like series against Australia in one of those series, but in the other series, don't think he made very many runs. And you look at his first-class record, and it's like he's still remembered by many people as this, you know, almost Adam Gilchrist figure before we had Adam Gilchrist. It's possible he just had one really good series, right? Um, So what would he have gone game in, game out? There's a lot of cricketers who have better – there's a lot of associate cricketers with really good first-class records, and there's a lot of – test cricketers who've played like five, 10, 15 test matches with really good records. But when you look at their records below, it doesn't match up. Um, and so it all, it's all tricky, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, crack at it if you'd like to have a go. Ian says, given the two flat tracks, I'm not allowed to use that wording, uh, that Antigua and Barbados provided, um, who are the current test bowlers of any nation that could have formed an attack to take 20 wickets on those? You would need bowlers... So they're two different pitches, so it's a bit tricky, Ian, but one of them you certainly needed to take – I can't remember which one it was now. They've all they're both blended into the same wicket. But Shaheen Afridi would be quite important because you needed new ball wickets um, uh, on that pitch. Pat Cummins would be important because he's a, he's a threat all the way through. Uh, Neil Wagner would have been really good on that. So if you had those three, and you could do a combination of those three if you don't want specifically those three, like you could, I don't know – um, um, uh, maybe Nokia could replace, um, Cummins. Uh, I don't know who, who replaces, um, uh, uh, Shaheen Afridi, uh, off the top of my head, I'd have to go back and look at the new ball numbers. Um, and then best old ball bowlers. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, Rabada might be a very interesting one there. I'd have to have a look at his numbers there, but you know, you could do that, but those are the kind of, that's the kind of three man pace bowling attack that you want. Did you mention and then, and then spinners, obviously, Ashwin. Um, Nathan Lyon's a very good flat-pitch bowler. Um, he's actually not that oh, – I think Ashwin's obviously the better bowler, but I don't think Lyon's that much worse as a, as a flat-pitch bowler than, than Ashwin. They're probably the two best. Am I missing anyone else? Judasia probably not for those sorts of flat pitches, is he? Um, and we don't really have any, you know, world-class leg spinners unless I'm missing someone. Um, so, yeah, so I think th- those are the sorts of ones. Uh, Thanks again to everyone on Patreon for your questions. Let's have a look at the green room. It comes. You there? Yeah, man. Hi. Hey, mate. What's your question?
2: Uh, More than a question, it's a request for you to meander and ruminate on marketing and branding and uh, cricket. And at the level of the game itself, and at the level of organizations and at a personal level, like you've done YouTube and stuff, right? So you could pick up on stuff like that.
1: So, sorry, your specific question is about how we market cricket.
2: Yeah, how much do we market So, from what I've noticed, uh, the late 80s had that Kerry Packer swing and uh, the mm. LPL had that uh, Merit Modi uh, fiasco when talked about marrying or merging cricket with Bollywood, which still makes me cringe. But we stuff definitely like this, uh, kind of more mainstream, but there are niche things as well, like um, individuals doing something or even cricket, for which, I, which I'm not wrong, was... Uh, Created for the sharing scores of worldwide. So yeah. it mo- the word might have spread in different ways, right? So that's the approach in which I'm going to get it, but you can do it on your own yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, the first thing I would do is that they did a really interesting thing when the Big Bash was first marketed. They took the word cricket out of it. And they weren't, I think they did a whole document where you weren't allowed to use the word cricket. And everything in their promotions was not using the word cricket. And I think that that, I understand why they were doing that, but basically that's admitting that your product is the problem and cricket as a product is not the problem. Uh, the way it has been marketed over time has been absolutely horrendous. Um, for instance, I don't think I've ever been in a test series where the opposition has been marketed and it's like South Africa returning up in Australia, Dale Staines coming to your thing. It, literally it should be cricket australia's job to make dale stain into the biggest hero villain figure whatever you want when he turns up um and we've seen i think if you look at the 2005 ashes that happened naturally through shane warne and through the australian team and that actually worked brilliantly from a marketing perspective right so from a very basic perspective that's the first problem the second one is that A lot of the people who don't try and market Test cricket specifically still look at Test cricket as this genteel relic thing, and it's like I remember I remember when I was talking to um, when we were trying to do some bits for our film, and and they were like they they were trying to push the editing team were trying to push this sort of genteel, and I was like Test cricket's violent, it's hard, it's it's like a grunge song, right, like it slows down for a little bit and lulls you in and then bang, the guitars hit, right? It, you know, it really has this a- huge power. Where's that in the advertising, right?
2: The way I used to articulate it was that it gave you a of the soul and did you realize there was nothing bad. there? Was yeah. Something there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so uh, well, what I, I talked about was that. And so that's another thing that for test cricket, but I think more more than anything, it's like, I don't think we grow heroes and villains and, matchups and all those sorts of things that almost every other sport in the world does. And I don't know if that's part of the nationalism sort of angle of, of this sort of thing, but from a nationalist point of view, I think that's really important. But even when you look at the league, the league cricket, I don't think we do that properly. And I don't think we celebrate what is fascinating and interesting about cricket. And I suppose that's kind of what the, my YouTube channel is about. Right it's like finding the fascinating and the weird and the brutal and the fun parts of cricket. And it's very, very rare that I see that most cricket advertising or marketing is either pretending it's not cricket, <laughs> which is weird. Or the other thing is, um, what they do is they, they try and play on the cultural stereotypes of cricket. I remember that was it the Crick buzz ads a couple of years ago. Um, I think maybe Sony have done this. They do it in England uh, with the way that they market cricket. And it's like cricket doesn't have to be marketed in that cultural stereotypy way of what cricket is. Cricket is a brilliant and brutal and changing and visceral experience on its own. That's kind of the way that it should be marketed um, and, and pushed around the world. And, and, For me, that's been cricket's biggest problem is the inability to, cricket's almost so polite that it won't just say, why doesn't the ICC just bring out a marketing campaign that is we're the world's second biggest sport, right? And I had this, I remember this with Cricket Australia. I talked to Cricket Australia people this years ago. They were going on and on, oh, Jared, you have to understand that AFL is this and rugby is this. And I said, why don't you market yourself as Australia's sport? They don't play footy in half the country. They don't play rugby in half the country, right? Market it that way. Exactly the same. If cricket starts saying it's the world's number two sport, who's going to complain? Tennis? Basketball? Good, then they can have their own marketing campaigns, right? Literally start saying we're the world's second biggest sport. Let's start pushing that rather than, than, than something else, right? And I really think that you know, there's a real apology in all cricket marketing. Uh, whether it be the Big Bash not mentioning cricket or whether it be, you know, the sort of the cultural side of it. And and it's nonsense, and we should definitely have, have moved on from that.
2: Do you think the 100 was kind of the same thing that happening, the Big Bash thing you mentioned?
1: Well, that Big Bash is the same people who sort of came up with the idea for the Big Bash came up with the 100. So they're directly linked to each other, realistically. Even, you know, it's all it's all the same thing, like Modi getting the Bollywood people involved is to make it cooler. And I kind of, I kind of get it, but it's like, do you know why Hollywood people and rappers and singers started coming to NBA games? Because the NBA was cool, right? It's not the other way around, right? It's not like rappers use the NBA To have street cred and we brought bollywood actors in who aren't particularly cool anyway let's be honest right you know they're not cool they're popular um but we brought them in and it's it's a backwards way of seeing it i understand what modi was trying to do don't get me wrong i think it's a really good idea and you see the hundred trying the same sort of thing this time but work on the product work on the marketing work on the heroes and the villains and the cool stories and all that sort of stuff i kind of think people come to that I'm talking everything from celebrities to, down to normal people like us. Come to it normally. And I think cricket's always gone about it the other way. Thanks for your question, though, mate. Very interesting. Joseph, you there? Yeah. What's your question, mate?
3: Today's uh, cricket fields, easy see outfields that are made out of some other
1: grass. What was the outfields like in the past? The outfields haven't changed. The, the big difference between old cricket and new cricket is that I think they spend a lot more time. I think. Australia, England. I'm trying to think of some of the other countries had outfields that you could dive on, and, and and you couldn't do that in a lot of other countries. And so, when players started to dive, outfields had to get a lot better around the world because you know it, it you know could cause injury. Also, I don't know if you've ever played you know on on a ground that's not you know that's hard. Diving on a a hard outfield is not particularly easy. Uh, Diving when there's not a lot of grass there to support you is not particularly easy. Um, So outfields sort of changed because of that, and they've become a lot better. But I also think that a lot of people didn't really factor outfields in as much um, in in the past. But outfields have become very good. I wouldn't be surprised if in the future outfields are hybrid, you know, so that they don't get it – so that they – better for rain and they don't get affected as much. So what you really want is probably an outfield um, that drains really, really quickly. And they've already started to do this in England, but I think we might see that eventually around the world. It's easier to control. Um, I mean, the problem with grass is that, you know, uh, I I had someone on on Twitter this week going, you know, our groundsmen making all these pitches um, uh, very, very flat? And it's like, we always have to allow for the fact that sometimes pitches are just flat because groundsmen make errors because these are grounds. Uh, you know, this is turf and everything. Uh, but thanks for your question, Joseph. I think we've got some people in the chat. Rohan says, What's your thoughts on the BCCI not allowing Indian players to participate in other cricket leagues? Yeah, I, th- I think that it's quite interesting because it doesn't help your players develop. In If it was, I don't know, I mean, you even, I think we must, I've had similar questions like this before. If you take the NBA, if all your players play in the NBA and that's all they know is, high school basketball, AAU basketball, college basketball, and then um, the NBA, they're obviously going to be very good players. They're also going to be slightly limited, right? And you see now that, you know, uh, Giannis, uh, Joe Allen-Bead, um, Luca, Joker, all these different players coming from outside. I, I Sometimes I wonder if they're not slightly more rounded because they come from Europe or Africa or, you know, um, Australian basketballers, all these different people because they get to see other things. You throw in the other thing, which is that the IPL is played on a particular kind of pitch, right? I'm not saying there isn't variance between their pitches, but there isn't as much variance between Indian pitches as there is between playing in the 100, playing in the Big Bash, playing in the CPL, playing in South Africa, right? Uh, So you're not getting the uh, experience in those other leagues. You're also not learning what it's like to playing those other leagues as an overseas, there's extra, it's easier to be, I always think of Shikhar Dawan's career, like he had a very sort of level career and then suddenly he had to start playing for his supper and he got really good at T20 cricket. The, the guys in the franchises have to do that all the time because if you're an overseas player and you're not performing, you're probably not going to get paid as much. Uh, and so again, I think that would help the Indian players. But I also understand it from the BCCI's point of view. They want their league to be the specialist one. I kind of think at this point, why not allow for ten to fifteen players? M- maybe not your, you know, your top ten to fifteen, but it'd be, you know, if I was Rahul Dravid, I'd be saying, and I know he's really big into all this sort of development. Can I not just pick, let's say, not from the top thirty players, but from the thirty to fiftieth place? Can we pick fifteen players? I want this guy to go to this league. I want this guy to go to this league. Um, I think that would be great. But it's not the way that the IPL seems to be going. Uh, Johnny says, have you seen anything in the West Indies England series that suggests that England can consistently get 400 in its first innings in this summer against South Africa and New Zealand? No. No, Johnny. Sorry. Um, It's been very flat pitches. The fact that Holder and um roach have been nullified from them we haven't seen gabriel obviously josh has spelled some really good spells i think there's been signs that england have done better but i don't think that means that england is suddenly gonna start making a lot of runs uh they lost a bunch of wickets early on uh when it was a new bully wicket i still think that under pressure on a on a pitch that helps bowlers they're still going to struggle a lot and i can't see anything that's changing the only thing that might be different, Johnny, is that the um, England um, ratings might be going well. At least if we do flat pitches, our batters will make some runs. Uh, Oren says, "What do you think? What do you think England see in Craig Overton?" All right. So, what does England see in Craig Overton? He's six foot six, so there's that. Uh, he can move the ball both ways. Didn't he average fifteen in first class cricket last year? Those are the basic things that they see in him. He gives them control with the ball he's a safe option, he's got a very good first-class record, he's tall. The other thing that I think they see in them that just does not exist is I think they see him as, I don't want to say an all-rounder because I think that would be unfair to them, but an all-rounder light. And I just don't think he is. If, if he averages 15 in test cricket, I think he's doing very well for his batting talent. Um, so um, I think that's the the main thing that they see in him. Um, Look, they're very big on height at the moment. I have a look at Fisher, who's just come in as well. Um, I think a lot of their analysis suggests that height is very important. I just don't think Craig Overton's a test match bowler, probably outside of England, um, consistently. But I suppose if you've got Robertson in the team and he can't play, Overton is a reasonable, you know, he's only robertson light. He's not as good uh, as as any of the things that um, Robertson is good at, but he can do all of them um so i i don't think they see him as a frontliner i think they see him as a backup second choice bowler um and they maybe slightly overestimate his batting um at this stage we have i don't think we've probably seen the best of overton at test match cricket either i don't know what his average is but um i don't think we've seen the best of him but i don't think the best i don't think he has a high ceiling in test match cricket kyle you there mate so question
0: for you as an analyst how do teams generally make the decision about when to declare when sending a final innings total? Because from Washington TV, it seems like sometimes captains are pretty dead set on a certain number. And even if wickets fall, they'll keep sending guys out there just to get the last 10 runs. Or that sometimes it's just done by feel. Or if there's like a slowdown in the scoring rate for over to as the analysts uh, consulted, are they giving? Because it seems like it should come down to a certain point about it an equation of overs left
1: versus runs leading by. Yeah. So that usually is the basic way they do it. I don't know how much the analyst is involved. That's a pretty old process at cricket, which is how much time do they have left? What will they have to score? And how do those two sort of intersect, right? So uh, if it's if a score over 400, you're willing to give them, um, you know, uh, y- y- you'd be like, well, they need to score at three runs and over for, you know, this many overs then we don't think they're going to be able to do that for that period of time without giving us chances. That's kind of how we do, it, uh, how it's done in, in cricket. The thing that you're talking about is just that cricket is a variable. Do you know what I mean? So um, if they, for instance, sometimes teams declare quicker because they think the pitch is changing and they don't want to lose a bunch of wickets for no reason, sometimes they think, oh, you know, uh, sometimes you will bat quicker than you need to bat. And so you'll see a team like accelerate in a a declaration, then they actually slow down. That's because they're worried about the overs calculation. But you do sometimes see just captains do it on the field, which is no different than what any coach or manager would do in any other sport, right? Like we've come up with all our best information, but now we just feel that we're ready and we can do it. And, you know, sometimes captains do that. Sometimes coaches make that call um, as well. Um, And, you know, there is a gut element to all those things. But generally... It should be, and more often than not, is runs and time left and they try and work out the best thing in the middle. But obviously because it's not like, you know, you and I, Kyle, could say, okay, well, it's T. When we want to declare by this time we want this many runs, you and I both know that then there could be a really good spell of bowling or the team slow it down or we lose a couple of wickets and we can't get Do you know what I mean? So there are variables to that which the captain and, and the coach and I suppose even the analyst has to be aware of.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I just remember reading the first time on Wikipedia I was learning the rules about cricket and realizing why would you ever wanna stop scoring? Um, I always thought declaring was a funny aspect of the game, but it makes <laughs> a lot of sense now. Obviously being physically extreme is an advantage. So really tall bowlers have an advantage, really short spinners. Would you think a like five four, five five, five six pace bowler who could actually get it to a mid-range, you know, because of the low bounce would have any sort of competitive advantage just because it's different, or is that just too different thing from cricket logic to maybe make sense? I think Bavuma kind of inspired me to think this because he kind of <laughs> bowls he's short and he bowls slow. But if a guy could bowl medium pace at that,
1: you know, height, it'd be interesting. Kima Roach is five foot eight or five foot nine. He's listed at five foot nine. I think that's optimistic. I think a big advantage to Keemar Roach in his career has been the amount of LBWs he gets because his balls don't bounce over the stumps as much. But the best example of that, Kyle, is a guy called Lasith Malinga. I don't know when you came into cricket and how much of a, a factor Lasith Malinga was, but Lasith Malinga bowls with a round arm action. Uh, he's not the only one. We also had Fidel Edwards uh, and we have had a couple of them through the history of the game come through and their lack of height is very, very important in in that different way, it can get found. The reason that height is important is that bounce is constantly a difficult thing. Low bounce, sorry, high bounce is constantly a difficult thing. Low bounce, you can sort of rock on the front foot too, if that makes sense. Why that is probably less important now is because we get more LBWs on the front foot than we used to. Um, And so because of that, Kima Roach, perhaps if we did have another Lassif Malinga or Fidel Edwards sort of come through now, they would have a bit of an advantage. Weirdly enough, in T20 cricket towards the end, there is still a very strong feeling that the shorter bowlers do better at the end of um, T20 matches because they have a lower margin for error for their Yorkers than a tall bowler. Um, I don't know how much of that is absolute nonsense and absolutely true, but, you know, Lassif Malinga was the best death bowler ever and had the lowest um uh release i would say there's a lot of other reasons why he was uh the best death polar ever other than just the fact he was releasing from a low height but at the same time certainly that played a part in it um so yeah there is advantages from that for, for for that i think when the pitch is very flat the someone who skids the ball on can come onto the bat very nicely whereas someone who's a bit taller still has the chance of getting a top edge or um bothering people with height and I think that's why tall bowlers have a huge advantage, but certain short bowlers certainly still have, a, a, can have a very good advantage, a, an outlier that you're talking about. I mean, we've seen it in baseball, haven't we? You know, the low release can cause different problems um, and Malinga, Fidel, um, and probably to a certain extent, Kima Roach all sort of suggest a similar thing.
0: Yeah. I kind of came in at the uh, end of his career, the 2019 world cup, and he was one of the players I immediately gravitated towards because it it looked different, and it looked
1: like it was harder to to pick up because of the release angle. Yeah, his was t- twofold. The first thing is, because it's low, way lower than anyone else. The second one is that he released from in front of the umpire, and no one else releases from in front of the umpire. So it's actually coming from a different spot with him uh, entirely. So, so yeah, I think I think you're right. There can be an advantage to that. Uh, thanks for your question, man. Baska, you there? Hey, Jared.
4: So uh, I've been listening to this conversation of this Hick and Ramprakash and their uh, skills being dulled playing a long time uh, in county cricket. But I was also looking at like Australian players like Mark Waugh, Mike Hastie, Damien Martin, Simon Catech, Darren Lehman. These people also were out of the test team for a very long time. But when they came back, they were actually able to still average for- high 40s and 50s. And some of them are considered great. So... How come this was not impacting these set of Australian players who would spend a lot of time playing first class cricket and he kind of affected Ram Prakash and other players in other other circuits?
1: Yeah, I think Ram Prakash is separate. I can't think of too many people have ever said Ram Prakash's skills were dulled by playing too much first class cricket. I think you're talking about Hicks specifically. Yeah. When we're talking about Hicks specifically, the big difference between him and everyone that you just named is all the rest of them played international cricket at a young age. Right. So they were already tested and they already knew what how international cricket was different to everything else. What Hicks' problem was is that he played a lot of cricket in Zimbabwe, which was of a very low quality um, at that time. They had a lot of good players, but, you know, they didn't – sorry, they had a, quite a few very good players, but they didn't have a wide variety of good players. He then played county cricket. A similar thing sort of happened then. He did actually play shield cricket, which you would have thought would have helped him. Um, but for whatever reason, didn't um, uh, move him forward as, mu- as much as it should have. If you look at some all, all, all the other players, um, who, who did you mention there? Lehman
4: Martin, yeah, Darren Lehman, Mark Wall.
1: Okay, so da- Darren Lehman's a really interesting one because I would say that anyone who saw Darren Lehman play would say that he was very similar to Hick. He was so good and spent so much of his time playing against average bowlers that I would actually, I would argue that Lehman was never anywhere near as good in test level as he should have been because of the same reasons. And if you go back, they said that at the time, right? Damien Martin's completely different. Damien Martin was in the Australian team at what, 20 or 21? He was tested as a young kid. He knew exactly what he had to do, right? The other advantage is Damien Martin played international cricket at an early age, but he then also... um, uh, uh, oh, I th- ooh, actually, I'm not sure with Demi Mum, but some of the other guys that you're talking about, so Matthew Hayden. Um, uh, 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 I'm trying to think, who else did you name? Uh, Simon Caddick. You could put. Is is there another one? Um, Mike. Well, Mark Waugh. I don't think he was in first class cricket for that long, was he? Wasn't in first class cricket for as long as he.
4: 85, when he made in 91, I uh, took the stick the uh, window anywhere.
1: Yeah, no, no. I, I, I suppose that's fair. Okay, Mark War. what did he average in Test Cricket? If like 42, things, I think around that much, yeah. You saw Mark War play. Do you think that's a, an adequate average for his talent? No, he should average more than Steve, team, right? <laughs> like... Right. So, again, you've got a player, potentially a similar thing happened. So Lehman, Mark War, Graham Hick, um, I'm sure we would see players like this around the world. I'm trying to think of, of others that um, off the top of my head, um, that where a similar thing might have happened or could have happened. So Rohit Sharma, the thing with Rohit Sharma is that he was playing international cricket. Yeah. Okay. Right. He did actually play a lot of international cricket. So I don't think. I mean, if you look at if you look at Lehman and Mark War and Hick, it's weird that they're all in a similar period. Lehman was a gun in 1989. Mark War probably I don't know if he was quite as good. But Hick Hick was certainly a gun for what five or six years before he did it. If if you've got a period where it takes you four or five years to break in, I think you can get into bad habits. And I think all of those players are exceptional talents, right? You know, if you look at if you look at someone like Mike Hussey or Chris Rogers, they're not quite at that level of talent, and they were still working on their games and getting better. If you look at Darren Lehman. I mean, I saw Darren Lehman bat in 1989 when he didn't even make any runs for Victoria. And he was obviously just a different level talent even when he wasn't making runs. Um, Mark Waugh, very similar. Graham Hick, very similar. Those sorts of players, you really want them to develop at that next level as soon as possible. Mike Hussey, Chris Rogers, Devin Conway, maybe not the same, right? Those sorts of players you probably want to develop um, a little bit slower. And it's a really tricky thing to work out who's this guy and who's that guy, right? And But I think that if you're averaging the sorts of averages that Hick and Lehman did, I, I can't remember Mark Wall's first-class record, to, to be honest, but I do think that there is a sense of boredom, there's a sense of this is too easy, and there's also a, a basic level where your skills are dulled a little bit. But it's a, it's a really good question. But I would say the one thing is the players... So for instance, one of the questions I'm asked the most is if, if county cricket is such a good finishing school, how come it doesn't finish English players? And it's like, because county cricket isn't a finishing school for English players. It's the entire school for English players. Right. And if you're a first class cricketer from Zimbabwe or Sri Lanka or the West Indies or Australia or New Zealand, you've already learnt a bunch of other skills. And then you come to England and you polish up a lot of skills by playing a lot of cricket in a short period of time. And you have to learn how to p- play for your wage, which is a really important thing, I think. Right. And I do think that if you're in that system, the county cr- cricket doesn't help you as much as if you're from out of that system. So a lot of those Australian players that you're talking about probably went over and earned really good uh, and, and learnt really good things about their cricket by pl- playing in county cricket in the same way that Hick couldn't learn anything extra by playing in county cricket. I hope that helps. Yeah. Thank you. No worries, uh, Andy's just got one uh, here on the chat. He says, "As a middling amateur batter, my experience has always been that the more I got to face a new bowler, the better I felt I was able to play them." However, elite batters talk about bowlers working them out across a series. Are you aware of whether there is any statistical relationship between the amount a batter has faced particular, uh, must be a bowler has faced a particular batter, um, and what they average against them? Okay, so the difference is Andy that over the course of one innings. Let's let's say you play club cricket and you play against someone. You're only going to play against them once or twice and you're going to work out specific things about them. They probably don't... Oh, what's the best way of putting this? If you If you had the best bowler in your competition, Andy, and they were able to face you for two... And they were able to bowl to you for two weeks, you might be able to work out how to handle them, but they would find out your every one of your flaws, right? And so over a period of time, they would have a natural, freakish, if they're one of the best bowlers in the competition, they would have a natural physical advantage and a natural tactical advantage by being one of the best bowlers. And now they're being able to work you out piece by piece. There is no doubt that batters can work out bowlers over that same period. What the batter is really talking about in this sort of test um, experience that you're talking about is that if I've, Glenn Chappell was a great county cricket bowler, but if I was a very good county player, Glenn Chappell could work me out, but he wouldn't remember every little problem that I would have and I'd only have to face him two times a season. What if Glenn Chappell had worked me out and I now have to face him for 10 consecutive innings? That's what they're talking about here. So th- there's no doubt that with a spinner, for f- um, let's say, that you might be able to work out what they do and how to nullify them, right? But the opposite of that is what if they work you out? And so there are certainly bowlers who would say a batter worked out how to face me over a period of time. But the ba- it's, it seems to be more dramatic from a batting perspective of – this guy has worked me out and I now have to face him in 10 consecutive innings. Um, seems to be the more dramatic jump, but you do sit, you do hear it on, on the other way as well. Sometimes a bowler will say, I didn't know how to bowl to him and he knew I didn't know how to bowl to him and I couldn't work it out. So it was pointless me bowling to him. But I suppose that in bowling, you have, you're continually trying to work things out. Whereas in batting, it's like, if this guy's got the wood over you, um, and you're out, you're out. Right. So, I hope I've explained that better, but the jump seems to be more dramatic for batters than it is for bowlers. Hope I've answered that for you, that one for you, Andy. All right. Rohan, you there? Yes. What's your question, mate? Just wondering,
5: I have a debate with my mates all the time about pitches around the world where they think that pitches should be the same for test cricket, this is mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. for all around the world, and I believe they should, and I believe that home teams should be able to dictate the pitches in according to what favors them, because that's the beauty of test mm-hmm. cricket. Obviously there's some stuff that you can't control, such as the conditions and the rate at which the pitch deteriorates and whatnot. But mm-hmm. what where do you stand on this? Do you think there should be one for
1: all or You can't even make one for all, right? It's impossible. So for instance, we have the Dukes in the West Indies, and they put lots of grass on on those pitches. They still have to make the Dukes a tougher ball. So people always say, it's usually the ball that people say, we need the same ball for everywhere. Well, if we use the same ball everywhere, it would be absolutely shit. There's a reason the ball is slightly different for slightly different conditions. It's not an accident. That's the other thing,
5: because even Shane Warne used to advocate for pink ball test match should be every match, test match. Which I
1: found pretty interesting. Again, I, I would love that to be the case, but Ada the pink balls still a work of progress. So that that would change Test cricket massively. The other thing is that we can't play Test cricket where there's due anymore, right? Because dew is it, it makes it makes one-day cricket and T20 cricket tougher and more interesting in some places and weirder, right? but it would destroy um, day-night test matches completely um, because, uh, you know, if, if you've got that ball um, wet over a long period of time, like, it would just absolutely destroy that period of the game. Uh, so the pitches, the, the best thing to look at, if you, if you go to the UAE, uh, they've got, if you go to the ICC Centre, out the back of the, um, so not in the main ground, but in, in the I- ICC Academy, they've got all these different pitches that they've dropped in from around the world. They've got an Australian set of pitches an English or New Zealand set of pitches um, and Asian pitches. And we played the world cup qualifiers on that in Scotland. And like you go to the, you go to the grounds, Oh, you know, what's the wicket? Oh yeah, This is, this is the Australian pitch. It's going to be pace and bounce. And the ball wouldn't get above knee high. Right. No Australian pitch I've ever seen. Like, or it would be, it would have some bounce, but it'd be a really slow bounce. Like the sort of thing you might see maybe in an, Old-fashioned West Indies pitch or something, and you're just like, again, this is not a Australian-style pitch, and the same with the grassier pitches, because it's fucking forty-eight degrees in the UAE, right? And you're in the middle of a desert, and stuff like that. You can't react. control
5: obviously the weather factors and whatnot. Yeah, at, so
1: so even if you had the exact same pitch, it wouldn't react the same way anyway. Um, clay content, the w- even the drop-in pitches, the way that they work, the way that they meld with that with the local with the local plates and all this sort of, you know, advanced greenkeeping stuff. It doesn't work the way that people would like it to work. Now, if your friends really want to do it, the best way to do it is to have um, hybrid pitches. The problem with the hybrid pitches as they currently stand is that, and I think Surrey is leading the way in hybrid pitches, and so I trust the people who play at the Oval a lot, and they say that they actually play quite cool and and they're fine for cricket but <laughs> i don't know how to explain this some balls stop and some balls zip right because depending on if it hits the hybrid bit or the turf bit it acts a little bit differently and so it means that sometimes it can be a little bit tough um you don't Test right we're not, would be not over ready pretty for, quickly then it's not even that we over pretty cr- quickly it's that we get players coming off going it was too paced every time and some pitch you're right some some games would be over quickly. Other times, I think also when they get the hybrids wrong, they're the best fighting, batting pitches in the world, right? So, uh, you know, they can go very, very wrong. But even then, I would assume that a hybrid pitch in Surrey would be different than a hybrid pitch in Lancashire, which I think is one of the other major places that they're trying them, which would be different than one in Antigua, which would be different than one in Melbourne, right? So um, I get what your friends are saying, but part of the, the the greatness of Test cricket and its uniqueness is that pitches are different everywhere, Right. I say this all the time like I you know I know there are slight variations in football pitches around the world, but you know essentially a football pitch in fucking yeah, you know, Uruguay is the same as a football pitch in Germany, right yeah and and basketball there are certain basketball stadiums that bounce differently and stuff but not like ours, right and and you know and i I think that while we have that advantage, we should be pushing it not going the other way um and even if we have hybrid pitches which we will eventually in one day cricket specifically, if nothing else than then to protect the squares. Even then, I still think they'll have different characteristics.
5: Yeah. And I also really liked your point about the fact that cricket doesn't market itself in a good way or like a mm. fashionable way. It always like they have to compare itself to another sport, whereas cricket itself, like if you really understand it, it's so many variables like as with any yeah. other sport
1: we're in a society like where people will watch someone play a video game on on Twitch for like seven hours, a really complex cricket, uh, you know, a computer game. And then it's like, Oh, we can't explain these, these cricket laws to people. What? Like my son fucking will watch someone play Minecraft for like seven hours. That's a fucking, he's watching a person hold a console with a fucking bunch of pixels in front of him that he is reconstructing into a storyline. That's a pig and that's a fucking uh, piece of steak don't tell me that that people
5: i lived in china and asked people like yep. i just talked about cricket like barely any of them even know what it is and i'm like for a country that's so good at like olympic stage sports imagine mm. if they came to the cricket market or like
1: yeah one of my favorites is japan it's like so people always say things like oh cricket's not made for this culture if cricket was made for any culture it's bloody japan right? They already like baseball. You like baseball? We're going to nerd it up a level above baseball for you, right? Baseball, it's great. you got all the American stuff. Do you know what we've got? We've got Afghanistan and the Caribbean and South Africa and, and, and Australia and so New Zealand. So much
5: more diversity, I feel, as compared to yeah. other sports. Like
1: We don't sell any of this sort of stuff. We don't really get it. And To be fair, it was one thing I thought the 100 was getting slightly better, which was, look at all these different people we have in our sport. We don't sell it that way. We sell it the opposite. We sell it like, oh, we've only got 10 countries that are any good at it. Fucking yes! Look at the fucking 10 weird-ass countries that we have that are really good at it. And then look at the next five, right? Women's cricket
5: is yeah. leading the way where, how they um, had, I think, Thailand in the one of the World Cups. Like, how cool is that? Or well, Philippines, maybe? I can't remember what I like.
1: Philippines had a very good team for a little while, the Brazilian women's team. Look, there's stuff happening, so you're right. Um, I've, I've got to get going because I've got one last question, but thanks, mate. Oh, cut him off right at the end. Hydrogen X, What's your question, mate? Last question. Let's knock it out of the park.
3: Yeah, so, uh, Jared, I just wanted to ask you, I think you have been a cricket analyst for how many years,
1: around about? I started in 2018 was my first job.
3: So, uh, around another four years. So, does being a cricket analyst take away that joy of being a fan? Well, Actually, this conversation has started nowadays that people are like fans of uh, people and not the game of cricket. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not a fan of anybody, but uh, I'm a fan of cricket, but I'm also a fan of like uh, the Indian cricket. So as you have been a f- cricket analyst for around four uh, more than four years, does that not take away the joy of being like a fan? It depends on what you're
1: a fan of right so if you are a fan of your cricket team let's go back so i've been an analyst for four years but i've been writing about cricket for what 15 years right if you're a fan of your cricket team specifically i'm writing about your cricket team you are going to learn a lot of things about your cricket team that you did not know previously the people you thought were heroes are going to be dicks you are going to realize that a lot of the things you were fed by your uncles and your aunties and your family friends and your older brothers and some chick you dated about your favorite players. They're utter bullshit. Uh, you're going to learn how the sausage is made and you're going to have a completely different relationship. I remember my uncle saying to me once, he said, he said, I don't think you follow. I don't think you're as big a fan of, as the, of the Australian team as you used to be. And I was like, I'm probably not of the Australian cricket thing. Cause I know the Australian cricket team. Like I know people in it, you know, George Bailey's the chairman of selectors and you know, he's a mate. Um, and I've been in a Hummer with um, David Warner and, you know, I've had really personal conversations with, you know, the Hummer, the the, the car, not a sexual position, by the way, in case anyone's going down. You do, so your relationship changes. Then you become, and then in my case, I've become an analyst and you're looking even more so at um, the specifics and how does this work and how does this fit in and what does this mean? But I'm still a cricket fan. I'm just not the kind of cricket fan that you're trying to def- define the China cricket fan you're defining is that i live and breathe um based on my favorite team winning or, or dying or my favorite player winning or dying that's not what i am anymore my relationship to cricket is gone but i love cricket like i love cricket more than many most most people who love their their cricket team don't love cricket as much as i love cricket all right i am still a cricket fan like it's just a different kind of cricket fan. And to be honest, if you look at my, if you look at me from the age of 12 onwards, I was probably always on this path. Like there weren't too many kids in, in Australia who, you know, their, their two favorite teams were Australia and Pakistan. Actually my, in fact, I take it further. My two favorite cricket teams when I was 12, 13, 14 were Victoria and Pakistan. Right. So I was always on this path of, of liking cricket more than I liked the teams. And in some ways, what, writing about cricket did was allow me to liberate myself from the nonsense of being a fan of the Australian cricket team. And I still like it when the Australian cricket team win. I was happy when they won the world cup and I was happy when they won big um, series. I'm really being happy I, with how they played in Pakistan, but I don't live and die by it. If Australia loses, yeah, if they win awesome. Um, but I'm um, also, it's also really cool to, you know, uh, find things out about cricket and work out how cricket is being played and, you know, instruct cricketers, and instruct coaches and work with coaches directly. So it's just a different kind of fan. So I'm also not
3: like, uh, I don't watch cricket only because of like random team. But uh, like uh, being a fan, even in the worst for worst situation, like uh, even in the Lords, uh, the 2021 Lords, I still had a little glimmer of hope that what if something happens and we win this match and then we actually won. It was like, mm-hmm. I was like so happy. So they still get that feeling?
1: like? Yeah, but the thing is that I can get that feeling about anything, right? I can get that feeling watching Ireland play against South Africa. I can get that feeling watching Afghanistan or watching the Thai women or, you know, uh, watching some franchise that's been struggling. I get the feeling that some of these people out on the field are my friends. Imagine watching your friend do something really cool like that, right? So you're, you're still framing it under that one thing. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the people who follow my work have kind of evolved beyond that. Right. A lot of them are fans of their team. Um, but now they're also fans of other things, right? Like so many people want Benny Howell to do well in cricket because I've built Benny Howell up. So there's like this Benny Howell fan club out there now. Right. Um, and there are heaps of players out there like that, that people get sort of obsessed with and all that sort of thing. and, in truth, like, it doesn't matter. You can fan over, like, a little itty-bitty thing. I One thing I really like is that when I wake up in the morning, if Australia's lost, it doesn't ruin my day, right? Because there's probably many other things that I can get. And I still am a fan. You know, I, I'm trying to do a similar thing in basketball, but I can't. I'm too obsessed with or too, uh, too much of a Denver Nuggets fan. But Denver, Denver Nuggets are almost the last team left, maybe – Collingwood in the AFL, where when they lose, it actually bothers me a little bit. That means I can really appreciate the sports much more though. Because I'm not, it doesn't matter to me if my team does well. The problem with 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 that is if the Indian team starts losing, so many people will stop following the Indian team, right? And we've seen that in Sri Lanka and we've seen that in the West Indies, and we see losing teams lose fans. If you're loving the sport, it doesn't matter if your team's losing because you're probably getting something else out of the sport. And that's all we're really talking about here. Thanks for your question, though, mate. And thank you to everyone for coming on to the chat again today and um, also for listening to the podcast in your all your normal places. As I said, big thanks to the Sports Social who are helping us. You might have noticed there's a lot more ads and stuff running with the podcast. If you don't like the ads, Come over to Patreon. We have all the episodes ad-free um, over on Patreon. And obviously this particular podcast is made available specifically by the people at Patreon. So Jared Kimber, Patreon, and you'll find uh, you'll find all the stuff there. But you can support us by buy me a coffee. Also, you know, if you go to Bodyline T-shirts, buy, buy a cool WG Grace T-shirt here. And a big thanks again to Manscaped, uh, who will shave your testicles better than anyone else. I should say they won't do it specifically. They'll help you do it. But if you use the code REDINCA, all one word, you get free worldwide shipping and 20% off. Thanks again for coming on The Green Room, if you came on The Green Room, or thanks for listening, or thanks for watching if you're on YouTube. Thanks for thanking. That's all I've got.